So it was probably very quiet that night under Abraham's stars. It had been 400 years and not a word. 400 years, not a glimmer at the edge, no movement, just the casual rocking of a people at the cradle of the world, eking out their existence under the authority of a king that they could not worship. Herod was just a puppet on a string, they knew that, the string that was connected to Caesar and ultimately back to Rome, sitting on his Roman throne a world away. Caesar had no idea what was about to happen. He couldn't possibly understand how the stillness was about to crack, how everything was about to break wide open, and how thousands of years of history were about to come crashing down, and how out of the silence, joy would collide with a weary, waiting, and watchful world, and how absolutely everything was going to change there under Abraham's stars. Joy. Joy is kind of a loaded word, isn't it? We see it everywhere. This past Monday morning, I was sitting having coffee at a coffee shop down in Canton, and in the front window, Joy, three big letters, giants, lit up with sparkling lights, J-O-Y. Then later this week, I was driving around, and I saw like the big yard inflatables, and in somebody's front yard, sure enough, there's the word joy. Ironically, it was positioned right next to the figure of the Grinch, which, (laughs) if that's your yard, I'm sorry, it just struck me oddly. We see joy branded everywhere. It's on coffee uh, coffee cups, it's on Christmas sweaters, it's on Christmas cards. But it seems like the more pervasive joy becomes, the rarer it actually is. We live in a much different world than first century shepherds. Instead of a joyless silence, many of us live in a joyless flurry. But the question remains, and it's probably just as important today as it was back then, is it possible to have a joy that lasts? Is it even possible to have the kind of joy that we can count on? Well, this is the third week of our four-week series called Advent, All Our Days. And if you're new to North Canton Chapel or you're just checking out this series, here's what this is about. Advent traditionally hangs on four words, four ideas that really help us understand how to think about this season. And they're very important for us as Christ followers. So just to recap, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dave taught us that if you are trying to hope in anything but Jesus, you are just wasting your time. Last week, Pastor Micah gave us this incredibly vulnerable glimpse into the source of peace, and spoiler alert, it's Jesus. And today we're taking a look at joy. And so as we follow this group of nameless shepherds in their ancient Near Eastern midnight, I want to invite you to consider what makes lasting joy. This very familiar story teaches us that joy is only possible for you if Jesus is precious to you. Joy is only possible for you if Jesus is precious to you. So before we get to our text this morning, I want to frame it up a bit. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, so you can turn there in your Bible, flip there on your phone, or follow along on the screens in just a bit. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about the author, Luke. So Luke was a doctor. 
vocationally. And so he writes with almost surgical precision. He uses dates and numbers and times and all this stuff way more than any other gospel writer. He's incredibly strategic. He's incredibly intentional. If you were to read the gospel of Luke from beginning to end, it would probably take you about 90 minutes. And you might feel like you're reading the storyboard of CSI or 24. It's incredibly action-packed, but incredibly detailed. Luke actually begins his gospel with a bit of a prologue, and you don't have to turn there, but I want to read it to you because it gives some insight into where he's driving this gospel. Here's what he writes, and tell me if you can't hear the doctor language in here. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Doesn't that sound like a doctor? Orderly account, certainty. This is all part of Luke's plan. Here's what we can conclude from this. Luke was sponsored by a guy named Theophilus. Okay, Theophilus is the dude's name, so if you have any kids in your family that you're looking for names for, don't go with that. But here's what Theophilus actually means. Literally, it means God lover, which is interesting. And so Theophilus sponsored Luke to write his book. But in verse 4, he says something very interesting. I hope you caught it. He said, I wrote this so that you will have certainty. Let's contextualize that a bit. Luke writes his gospel with one thing in mind, to give Theophilus, and therefore us, a gift. It is possible to have joy that we can count on. And he spends the rest of his book talking about how that's possible. So one final bit of introduction, and then we'll get into our text. Luke launches his gospel by focusing on two characters, an old priest named Zechariah and a young woman named Mary. These are the first two characters that we meet in the Gospel of Luke, and he sets them up as two contrasting characters in his Jesus story. So first, this old priest named Zachariah. So Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth don't have any children, and they are advanced in years. Zachariah is serving in the temple, and while he's serving one day, he has a meeting with an angel named Gabriel, and here's what the angel says. He says, you're going to have a baby, Zechariah goes, how can this be? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Does that sound familiar? And an angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you didn't believe my words. Like, it's a little harsh. <laughs> But if that sounds familiar to you at all, if you followed our previous sermon series or if you know the history of the Old Testament, you know that miraculous births to people in their old age is not a new tale for God. Abram and Sarah, ring any bells? Right? This is what God does. He upsets our expectations. So when Zechariah's faith stutters, he's not being humble, he's being forgetful. And that's a problem. But now this young woman named Mary... It's a very different story. Same angel comes to Mary, and here's what he says. He says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you'll bear a son. And you'll call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and he will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and as of his kingdom there will be no end. Like that's incredible over the top birth news about a baby. So how does she respond? If you follow down just a few verses, she says this, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Two very interesting characters to start this gospel with. They're both visited by an angel. They both get incredible news, but they both have completely different ways of responding to God's movement. And so Luke is setting the stage. This battle between belief and unbelief, awe and cynicism, delight and doubt. And so as the time gets closer, And God is just about to lift the latch and push open the door and step into his world. Caesar Augustus, from his throne in Rome, calls for a census, and this young woman and her husband travel to backwater Bethlehem where nothing ever, ever happens. And that brings us to Luke 2, verse 8. Join me there. Luke 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Don't you just hear Linus in there? Like you just cannot get away from it. Two things we want to see here. First, who was told and then secondly, what was said. First, who was told? Shepherds, right? Everybody loves shepherds. They're a part of every nativity scene there with their little shepherd's crook like leaning up, right? Maybe you, when you were a kid, you donned the bathrobe and the walking stick and you participated in a church or a school play as a shepherd. And we love this image of shepherds, right? It's very evocative of this like old world charm and this like pastoral romanticism. But in the first century, nobody thought shepherds were cute. Nobody thought they were charming. And no one wanted to be them, especially if you were Jewish. Here's why. Shepherds were required by law to live outside the city walls. Their work made them perpetually unclean. If you were a shepherd, you were not permitted inside the temple courts. You were an outsider. You were low class. You were utilitarian. The only part of Jewish society that you contributed to was to prepare Passover lambs for Passover once a year. That's interesting. Shepherding was hard work. It was not for the faint of heart. You had to wrangle obstinate sheep and keep them safe from predators. You had to be vigilant against dangers and thieves and holes and rocks and valleys. You would tend to their wounds, and as a thank you, you'd get kicked in the face. Shepherding isn't fun. It's not charming. Shepherds were watchful people. They were humble people, but they were hardly influential people. And so when it came time to reveal himself to the world the great God of the universe, having an army of angels at his disposal, 
chose to reveal himself to a ragtag group of shepherds. Now, what was said? This is where things get very, very interesting. So first, an angel appears, and the text says that the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were afraid or filled with great fear. But then the angel says, verse 10, he says, fear not, which is an incredibly common command in Scripture. More importantly, though, he says why you shouldn't fear. Here's what he says. Fear not for, that's your purpose clause, that's why you shouldn't fear. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And then in verse 11, another one. For, he's unfolding God's promise and his plan a little further now. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Three titles that are all incredibly important. Did you catch them? Savior, Christ, and Lord. Now, we hear that and we picture this blanket-wielding Linus giving the gospel to an empty auditorium under a spotlight next to an inauspicious Christmas tree. But there's something else happening here that we need to see. Luke is deliberately lifting language from a piece of his cultural context, and it's both wonderfully sarcastic and deeply theological, and I love it, especially if you have a sarcastic sense of humor. Here's what's happening. Remember Caesar Augustus, the guy that called the census? This dude has a bit of an ego problem, like most Caesars, okay? So Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who was the first Roman emperor to call himself God. It's a bit of a bold move, right? Kind of turns up the discipline at home a little bit, like, clean your room, son. Why? Well, I'm God, so do it, right? This whole thing, right? So later, Julius Caesar is off, and Augustus ascends the throne in 27 BC. And so when Augustus ascends the throne, he picks a title for himself, And it's actually his favorite title for himself, and he chose it. Anybody want to guess what it is? It's the Latin divi filius, which means son of God. Kind of a bold move. Then it gets even crazier. Augustus decides that he is such a good leader, and he's so central to the Roman world that the Roman calendar should now start on his birthday. And so he has this guy, yeah, crazy. So he has this guy who's a historian politician named Paulus pitch the idea. Okay? And so here's what Paulus has to say about Caesar Augustus. Listen to this. Caesar's birth is equivalent to the beginning of all things. He is a savior who brings peace, whose birth as God brought good news and great joy. Did you catch it? Sound familiar? This happened first. Savior, peace bringer, and God. You see what's happening here? Luke, by recording the angel's words, dropping them into his gospel, and applying that language only to Jesus, Luke is committing plagiarism, treason, and sacrilege all at the same time, and I love that. I love how subversive the Bible can be when you get a sense of what's happening. He's like saying, you think Caesar's birth was about a God who stepped in the world to bring peace. Just wait till you see who I'm gonna tell you about. And so as he's commending his gospel to Theophilus, this patron who's reading through Luke's words, you have to know that all this is simmering in the back. Jesus' birth calls into question the emperor's status as savior, the extension of his rule, and even his right to rule. And so brick by brick, Luke slowly is building his case that joy is only possible for you if Jesus is precious to you. 
Before the scene shifts, one more thing happens. The angel is joined by what the text describes as a multitude of heavenly hosts. That's an emphatic expression that just means the entire population of heaven. You ever been to a football game where they call for a moment of silence? It's pretty eerie, right? You've got like hundreds or thousands of people. And from the bleachers to the concession stands, everybody's head turns. Everybody's mouth closes. And all their attention is directed to one spot. That's what's happening here. Only it's not a moment of silence. It's a moment of singing. I don't know how many angels live in heaven. I don't know what that looks like. But I know that had to be a staggering, stunning moment. All of heaven turns its gaze to this lonely field of quiet shepherds and announces that the time has come. And God converts great fear into great joy. Isn't that awesome? Those words where they say they were filled with great fear. And then like 17 words later is the phrase, I give you good news of great joy. It's interesting when you think about that because isn't it so true in our lives that fear seems so much louder than joy? Sometimes those feelings are separated by a chasm that seems impossible, but that switch for God is so quick because he is supreme over darkness, he is sovereign over time, and he is sufficient over his creation. Joy is only possible for you if Jesus is precious to you. Then the scene changes. As quickly as they come, the angels disappear. The text says they go back up into heaven, back to the shepherds. Now, there's a tension hanging over at this point in the story. It's a tension that the text doesn't explicitly say, but we're meant to see it in what Luke is doing here. Remember those first two characters that he introduced us to? Old priest, Zachariah, and young woman named Mary? Here's why that's important. Consider these shepherds. They've just seen the same angel, right? They've just heard incredible news. They've just been filled with that same fear that Zachariah and Mary had felt. In fact, Luke uses the word do not be afraid or fear not to link these three scenes. And so you have to imagine that Luke's patron, Theophilus, is sitting there going, what is going to be their response? How are these shepherds going to respond to what they heard? Zechariah responded in doubt. Mary responds in obedience. What are the shepherds going to do? Verse 15, here you go. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Nestled in the shepherd's response is this beautiful principle about joy, and here it is. Amazement at God is fine, but amazement needs to lead somewhere, somewhere better. We were not created just to be amazed at God. We were created to worship God. Luke has introduced us to three characters. Zachariah responds in doubt Mary responds in obedience, and now the shepherds respond in worship. What is Luke trying to communicate to Theophilus? Jesus is not just some casual king you put in your curio cabinet 
He's not just another king in this long line of kings. He's not just another false messiah who's going to bring empty promises and disappointment. He's the only one worthy of your worship, the only king worth submitting to, and the highest treasure that you could possibly seek. Joy is only possible for you if Jesus is precious to you. But what I love most about this scene, as quick as it is, it happens super quickly, is that Luke gives us insight into the first gospel presentation of all time. Did you catch it? It's in verse 17. Here's what he says. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. All they did was said, look at what God did. Here's what God said. I'm just going to push it out there for you. Look at what God did. Well, how'd they respond? What was the result? Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered, or your text may say marveled at what the shepherds had told them. That word marveled is one of Luke's favorite words. He uses it all the time in his gospel. And it's a great word. Here's what it means. Luke will use it all throughout his gospel when he's writing it, and it's a clue. He used it at the very beginning when Zechariah came out of the temple and he wasn't able to speak. The people marveled at what happened to him. He'd use it when Zechariah named his son John. The people couldn't believe it. Later, he'll use it for Jesus. When Jesus starts speaking and people are marveled at his words. When Jesus calms the storm and stills the sea, his disciples marvel at his might. When Jesus frees a man who was enslaved to a demon, people marvel at his power. And then last and not least, after the resurrection, the disciples marvel that they even see him again. What's Luke trying to communicate? I'm announcing Jesus' birth as miraculous and worthy of worship. His life is miraculous and worthy of worship. And wait till you see how this ends. All of this points somewhere. It's as Luke is trying to make this not so subtle point for his reader and thereby us. It is impossible to come to Jesus complacently. You cannot be on the fence about this Jesus. He is either the rightful object of all of my worship and Lord of my life, or he is an arrogant upstart carpenter's son. There is no middle ground. Writer and author C.S. Lewis put it this way, and I want to read it to you because he nails it. Here's what he says. I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Have you ever heard that? Like, I hear that a lot. Like, we got bumper stickers floating around that say things like that, and we go, come on, really? Here's what C.S. Lewis says is wrong with that. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with someone who said he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Isn't that great? Luke's point to his inquisitive patron reading his book is that Jesus is simply wonderful. He isn't your homeboy, he isn't your buddy, and he's not your friend. Jesus is Lord, and he is king, 
and he is worthy of all of your worship. Getting back to this gospel presentation in verse 17, the shepherds do one simple striking thing. They simply tell what God has done. And at the crux of it all, that's evangelism. It's just telling what God has done. It isn't points and it isn't arguments and it isn't flow charts. Evangelism is here is what God's doing. You ever wonder if we lost that some, somewhere? Can we talk about what God is doing, what God has done in our lives and in our world? Joy is only possible for you if Jesus is precious to you. There's one more movement to this story, to this scene, before we get into what it means for us. Verse 20. We see the shepherds again, but this is the last time we see them, and we see their backs as they're heading another way. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. One verb, they returned, right? They went back to where they were, two participles, right? How did they go? They went glorifying and praising God. Interesting. Any other time Luke uses those words, glorifying and praising God, it's in conjunction with Jesus' miracles as an adult. And so he's saying, look, this whole thing is miraculous. Jesus deserves your attention. He is not casual. He deserves your worship. So, there's our text and those are our characters. Luke has laid out his argument perfectly. I'm intrigued by something. Um, I'm thinking about this text and thinking about this time of year and this idea of joy. I was struck by the idea that how consistent this hunger for joy is across cultures, across people, across time. We're separated by this from like 2,000 years on the other side of the world. I believe absolutely everybody craves joy. And not just happiness. We crave deep, abiding, lasting joy. We crave safety and security. We want to know that we matter. We want to know that our story matters, that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to know that life is not just all there is. The trouble is we seek that pursuit through all kinds of wrong ways. And so it's a little indicting when we feel so joyless The United Nations released a report that sought to measure the happiness of different countries around the world on a scale of one to 10. Their metrics included hard data like life expectancy and economic health, but it also included soft numbers like how generous people were to you, your social support and your freedom to make choices. The top four countries in the world, we are 18th on the list by the way, The top four countries in the world gave an average rating of 7.5. Americans give an average rating of just around six. They also discovered that one in four of us rarely feel like there are people who truly understand us. Loneliness is the number one fear of adults today ahead of losing your home or your job. It would seem that the more prevalent joy becomes, the rarer it actually is. Maybe we are not as happy as we let on. Maybe our online profiles are a little disingenuous. Maybe there's something happening under the surface that we are not really comfortable admitting. 
What do you think? I believe everybody is seeking joy. And I mean everyone. We just seek it through the wrong channels. We seek it through ourselves. Maybe if I can elevate myself, get a pay raise, get a better job, if I can convince myself that I'm significant, then maybe that'll lead to joy. Here's the problem. Lasting joy never begins or ends with the letter I. (laughs) Or maybe we wait for our circumstances, things around us, like, well, you know, when this person straightens this thing out or we get this all cleared up, then I'll be okay. Then joy will happen. Trouble is, then you've just given the keys to your joy to somebody else, and how often does that work? (laughs) And so here we are, the source of lasting joy being born in a manger in a world of potential Theophiluses waiting to hear the answer. So what are we to make of this very familiar story and this very familiar scene? There are three considerations I want to leave you with. Three things I think we can take away from this story that impact us whether we are trying to spread joy or find joy. And here's the first one. The gospel is for the many, not for the few. The gospel is for the many, not for the few. God chose lowly shepherds to visit a carpenter and his wife in backwater Bethlehem. Not the marketing plan I would have chosen at all. But that's how God did it. Speaks a lot to the value of people, doesn't it? God's criteria for who's valuable, who's open and listening. And this is Paul. 60 years later, the apostle Paul would sit down and write a letter to a church in Corinth. And he would say this. He would say, consider your calling, right? Remember what it was like when you met Jesus? For those of you in this room that followed Jesus closely, he says, consider your calling. He says, not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God, two incredibly powerful words in the New Testament. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one can boast before him. God is in the business of upending our expectations. So what's Paul's point? I said it a couple weeks ago. I'll say it again. The gospel is the great leveler. Everybody stands on equal footing before God. And tell me these shepherds weren't rejoicing in part because out of a lifetime of being looked down upon, God goes, you know what? I'm starting there. God does this stuff. Everybody in this room, we are all equally sin rotten. We are all equally hopeless. We are equally lost. We are equally frustrated, equally unable. But in Christ, We are equally adopted. We can be equally redeemed, equally justified, equally given a hope, equally have hell canceled and heaven guaranteed. There is nothing fundamentally different about anybody in this room. We all have the same need that Theophilus had, that Luke's original readers had, that these shepherds had. The only person that makes any difference in our life is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so this good news of the gospel is not for the few, it's for the many. This is the first consideration I want to give you. Here's the second one. Worship rouses a joyless heart. Worship rouses a joyless heart. Here's what I mean. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Okay? Fishing metaphor for you. Come on, I haven't done one in like two months. (laughs) 
Happiness is like the waves on the surface, okay? This is what's visible in our life, right? But joy is like this deep undercurrent that pulls the river along regardless of what's happening up here. Don't confuse the two. Here's why that's important. I think we need to say this, and maybe this will free some of you. Joy is not a personality trait, okay? It's easy to look at somebody who's like a very effervescent personality who likes to tell jokes and who's laughing and very outgoing and go, man, that guy is joyful. And then when you get over to somebody else who's a little quiet and a little more introverted or reflective, when you go, man, what is wrong with her? Joy is not a personality trait. That's talking about the waves. What we're really talking about is what is underneath the surface here. And joy is always a result of a relationship with God, no matter how it manifests itself on the surface. We're not after happiness all the time. We're after joy. And I say that because two things are true. Everybody has different personalities. Welcome to Christmas family dinner. It's true in families and it's true in churches. Everybody has different personalities, but probably more true too. The second reason I need to say that is because there are times when even the most positive person feels neither happy nor joyful. And I need to say this because this is Christmas time and it's one of the most emotionally charged times of the year. Maybe you get to this spot in the year and this is just hard for you. Maybe you lost your spouse this year. Maybe you have conflict with extended family members that keep you up at night. Maybe you have conflict with a toddler who keeps you up at night. And so the solution is not shame on you. Feel joyful. Pull up your bootstraps, right? No. Here's my word for you. Cultivate joy through worship. And what I don't mean by that necessarily is hands up in the air, singing it out from your heels, lean back, eyes closed, right? Not necessarily. If that's your personality, go for it, lean in. Whatever your personality is, worship Christ in a way that centers your affections on him where you can treasure him above all. No matter what that looks like for you. Here's what it is for me, just to be personal. When the waters of happiness are like still and silent on the surface, It's usually because God is working down here to create a deeper channel for joy. And so if this is you and things are just like, eh, God's probably doing something down here underneath that is more substantive and lasts longer. You know what I want most for you as, as your pastor? I'll give you this. This is a vulnerability moment. I want you to be fully convinced of the presence of God in your life at the times where you are most tempted to disbelieve it. Because if that's true of you, if you can believe that God is always at work in your life for his glory and your joy, then everything does turn out. Sometimes it just takes time. Worship rouses a joyless heart because it strips away all the clutter from around our souls and centers our emotional life on the one person who is our mooring and steadfast hope, and his name is Jesus. So third consideration I want to give you. God's people are storytellers. God's people are storytellers. Talked about evangelism a little bit ago, and I want to go back to it. Evangelism is not knocking on doors and handing out paper. If you're knocking on my door and giving me a piece of paper, it better be an order form for Girl Scout cookies. Here's the deal with evangelism. 
okay? Evangelism is simply being a good news teller. And so the question is for you, do you tell the good news of what God is doing in your life to your every day and every one? If you've been here at North Canton Chapel for 10 minutes, you know that's a big deal. Making much of Jesus every day to everyone, that's what we want to be about. That's what I want my life to be about. And so we're uniting in this great cadre of people across time who just talk about what God has done and point them to a savior. And so if you've attended a membership matters class or a rooted group, you know there are three elements to a gospel story. Here it is. Who I was. Start here. Who I was. Now this can be what you used to believe about yourself, what you used to believe about God, what you used to believe about his world, how you saw things, who I was. I was stuck in this spot. These are the pools that you swam in until you realized that they were mud puddles. And they're really uncomfortable to look at. But everybody's got to get a handle on that. Because whether your conversion experience was like this big, catastrophic, monumental thing or something else, everybody is a sinner in need of a savior, and we've got to come to grips with that. Who I was. And then there's the second part, what God did. Your story doesn't stop there because no lasting joy begins and ends with the letter I, right? And so God did something. This could be a scripture you came across, a conversation, a worship experience, something. It was who I was and then somehow God invaded my world and showed me that he's better than all that stuff and that his call to die to myself is only the way to truly live. For me, it's John 10.10. When I read John 10, 10 the first time, it was like the car hit the wall and I flew through the windshield. Something God did. And then here's this last part of every gospel story. Who I was, what God did, and how he's changing me. How he's changing me. This is where you get to get really specific and you say, look, I'm an anxious person, but God is telling me that I don't have to be in control because he is great. I'm a very fearful person and I'm fearful of people's opinions about me, right? But God is convincing me that I'm an adopted son and so I don't need to fear what people think about me, right? This is what God is doing inside of you. And I'll be honest with you guys, that's the part that's missing in so many of our stories. We're pretty good at that first part and maybe that second part. How is God changing you? What's he actually doing? That's all these shepherds did. They just went and said, here's what God's doing. Here's what God's doing. Here's why that's crucial. You can only talk that way if you mean it. You ever been around fake Christians? It's the worst. Because you can fake happy all day long, you can't fake joy. And so part of what this text teaches us is it shows you how to recover joy that lasts as a storyteller of what God is doing in your life. The heart of evangelism at its crux is me trading my story for God's story. And it's making much of him. Joy is only possible for you if Jesus is precious to you. It had to be quiet under Abraham's stars. Why would God choose shepherds to visit a baby? Because he wasn't presenting the world with a baby, he was introducing us to a lamb. And of all the Passover lambs that came through their flocks, it kind of makes you wonder, wonder if some of those shepherds were the same shepherds on the hillside when Zachariah's son named John pointed to this man named Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
He's savior. He's a peace-bringing king, and he is God. Let me pray. Our Father, you are a joy bringer, and you give your joy so generously to us. You give it so selflessly. You didn't have to. We have offended you by our sin, and we've pushed you away, and we say, I don't want you anymore. But when that was about to reach a fever pitch, you stepped into our world, this place that you created and filled with your people. And you were born as a baby so you could grow up and to pay for the thing that we could not possibly pay for ourselves. So Father, if there's anybody in this room that either doesn't know you, they've never seen Jesus this way, or maybe they're just flirting with you, we have a casual relationship with you, God, I pray that you would invade our lives as Lord and King and you would conquer our sin, you'd push back our darkness. Father, we love you. We say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.